Hi, my name is Mark Riggins, and I'm pastor here at LifePoint, located in Plano, Texas, and we meet here every Sunday at 1030, and we are here for your family. I hope today's message is an encouragement to you. We think that the only people who influence this world are people who have fame or people who are, you know, have a lot of followers on social media, but it turns out as we go around this room, for the most part, it's people who are close to us and who we know and who are ordinary people. Isn't that encouraging? So here's the question then. Who do you have influence over? Is there anybody in the room or in this world that might mention you? I suspect there is. You see, because in reality, you have influence even if you don't think of it in terms of influence. God has given you influence. It might be as an employer or an employee. You have people that you are co-workers with. You might be on a board. You might be on a committee. You might have siblings, you have a spouse, you have a, a, a parent, you have children, grandchildren. Maybe you serve in the community in some way, you vote. Like there are ways in which you volunteer. There are a lot of ways that we have influence. These are positions that God has given us. And as we heard around the room, these make a profound impact in our lives, these positions these roles that we're given. In fact, some of you volunteer here at the church and you're influencing people by investing your time in that way. In fact, there was somebody just this week, a man who was telling me that he serves and has served in our children's ministry, serving fourth grade boys. He's been doing it for more than uh, than 15 years, so much so that here's the influence. That would be obvious impact by the amount of years he served. But listen to this. He said he's had several examples where fourth grade boys would grow up to be high schoolers and they'll come back and serve with him in these four, with these fourth grade boys. In fact, this year, a senior who used to be one of his fourth grade boys has come back and has committed the year serving with him to reinvest in these fourth grade boys. And so I asked this man to come and share his story today. And you know what he told me? I can't because I'm scheduled to serve the fourth grade boys. <laughs> he and the senior. Yeah. So, I just want to say, if you've got a fourth grade boy, when you go back and see Phil April, will you tell him thank you for the way he's using his time to invest in other people, to influence people for God's glory? Now, here's the question. What about you? What are you doing with your position of influence? Because you have one. You may not think of it in terms of that, but God has leveraged that, given that to you for a season so that you can use it. The question is, what are you doing with it? And this is why I'm so excited to get to today's hero. Today's hero is Esther. Now, Esther is an incredible story. There's so much drama, and there's so much we can learn from this story. There are so many practical principles that are absolutely relevant today, but there is one that I had just never noticed before that we're going to look at today, and I believe it's a game changer if we can embrace it. But we've got to really understand the story because there's a unique historical context behind this story. You may know this story was, uh, took place around 500 years before Jesus, really 5th century B.C. Now what's fascinating is, you remember in week one, the hero we looked at was Nehemiah, who took, when the children of Israel were uh, in captivity in the, in the empire of Babylon, the nation of Babylon, they were then later overtaken by the Persian empire, and the Persian king is like, What are these Jewish people living here? They're free to go on back to Israel where they came from. So Nehemiah led a whole bunch of them back to Israel, but there was a large group of Jewish people who stayed. After all, they had been raised in this land. 
And this group of people is sort of never heard from again. There is only one historical document that records their journey, and it's this one book, the book of Esther. It's in that context where these people are still in a foreign land, and there aren't a lot of them, about 5th century B.C., that we pick up this great story of Esther. Now, we're going to see a lady who is willing to break protocol and speak her mind, and in doing so, God will use her to preserve a whole bunch of people, to rescue them from, uh, essentially, a, a mass killing. So, I want you to kind of get a little more familiar with Esther. If you don't know the story, there's a man named Mordecai, a very godly man in this story, who is really Esther's cousin, but he's much older than her. Esther is orphaned at a very young age, and God uses Mordecai to adopt Esther, and she essentially becomes like his daughter. He raises her, and he's going to continue to speak into her life and be a big influence in her heart. But there's another character in this story, and his name is King Xerxes. He's the king of the empire. Without a doubt, he's the most powerful man on the planet at this time during this era. You can go and read a little history about King Xerxes, as King Xerxes is the one who uh, is over the Persian Empire. They battle Greece and some other neighboring nations, and I'll reference that in this story. But at some point in the story, through a crazy set of circumstances, and if you're ever looking for an exciting read, I would recommend the book of Esther. And man, there's some moral ambiguity as you go through it, and I would not read it to my kids, but it is a great story, I'll tell you that. Having said that, at some point, King Xerxes is looking for a wife. And to look for a wife, they're going to bring 400 virgins before him, and it's going to sort of be like the show Bachelor, but it's Persian edition, right? And they're going to bring all these women before him, and it's an elaborate you know, process. And eventually, of all unlikely people, it's this orphan Jewish girl named Esther who enters the competition, wins the competition, and becomes the unlikely queen of the Persian Empire. Think about that. She's gone from being an orphan girl who's Jewish, who's uh, completely unknown with no power and no prestige, to marrying the most powerful person on earth. And now she's the queen of the powerful empire of Persia. Now, if we stop the story right here, it's like a Disney story, isn't it? Have you ever thought of where they get the plots for all the Disney movies? It's the story of Esther, I'm telling you. She's an orphan who's gone from rags to riches. Hello, Cinderella, Little Mermaid, Frozen. They all got it from Esther, right? Disney's been making billions of dollars off of the story of Esther, right? It's this great story, but the story doesn't end there because the Bible story is so much more exciting. In this point of the story, there is a villain who enters the story, and his name is Haman, and he's kind of like Jafar from Aladdin, right? And Haman enters the story, and he ends up talking the king, King Xerxes, into two uh, decrees, one of them is bad, but the second one is evil. So here's the first uh, trick. He talks King Xerxes into this decree for the entire empire. When I walk by, everyone should bow. Well, that kind of says everything when you know about the man, that that's the decree he wants to put into place. That when I walk by, everyone should bow. But there is one man, his name is Mordecai, who following God decides, I will not bow. And when Haman sees that Mordecai won't bow before him, he is infuriated. And he begins to do research, and he finds out that this Mordecai 
is one of the Jewish folks that have remained in the country. And he does what a lot of us are tempted to do in our human nature. He judges an entire people group based on the actions of one person. He dislikes and hates this one person, so he decides he dislikes and hates all Jews. And that leads him to the second evil decree. And I want you to see what he does. He tricks King Xerxes into scheduling a day where the remaining Jews would be killed. Now it turns out there's actually a war strategy behind this as well, and that's how he tricked King Xerxes into it, because the king had actually been at battle with a neighboring nation of Greece, and you can read about that in history, which didn't go very well, and the entire empire is suffering financially. So part of the way Haman tricks King Xerxes into this is he says, listen, when we kill the Jewish people, we'll be able to pillage and take all their goods for our own, and that'll be given to the kingdom. And so there's a financial incentive to his evil plot. Now, with all that said, as evil and as sinister and as icky as this second decree is, sometimes you do something and after a day or two you think, what was I thinking? Why did I say that, right? You ever felt that way? You feel some regret, you feel some remorse? I want you to see just how evil Haman and turns out the king in this season are. Because after the decree goes into place, so they've had plenty of time to think about it, I want you to see how they are reacting to their decision to have all of the Jews killed. And that's where we pick up the story in Esther chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, there's one right there in the pew. You can find the book of Esther in your table of contents. I want you to join me at the end of chapter 3. That's where we'll pick up the story. And we're going to see the response of King Xerxes and Haman as they've had this evil plot officially put into place. And instead of regret, look at Esther chapter 3. In verse 15, we're about halfway through the verse, it says, The king and Haman sat down to drink. In other words, they're celebrating, they're going to toast this new decree, and they are excited about the future. The empire will be saved by the financial windfall of removing this entire group of people from the earth. Now, there's a lot of evil in a heart that can toast the demise of other people. But how are the general public feeling? How are just the normal citizens in this headquarter town of Susa there in the Persian, how are they feeling? I want you to see the rest of verse 15 because you'll see a contrast. It says, but the city of Susa was bewildered. They're confused. They're, they're, they're struggling to understand there's some chaos in their hearts. Like, what's going on? Why would there be a decree? We're at peace with these Jewish people. Why would we be uh, exterminating an entire group of people here in our country? I mean, these are neighbors that they would go to school with, that they would shop with, that they would do life with. And they're hearing about this decree, and they're completely bewildered. And then you may wonder, well, how do the Jewish people feel? Because they're the ones who are most directly impacted. Well, look at chapter 4, verse 3, as we continue to forward through the story at how they're responding responding to this recent evil plot and evil decree it says in every province to which the edict and the order of the king came there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting weeping and wailing many lay in sackcloth and ashes they are completely distraught just like we would be just like you would expect them to be this is a dark night 
for the Jewish people in the Persian Empire. And can I be honest with you? They need a hero. They're looking for somebody who will stand up for them, who would represent them, who has influence. But here's the problem. The Jewish people don't have influence. They, they don't have prominence in any way. Oh, but Mordecai, he begins to look around, and as Mordecai begins to look around, he realized Esther is in a position of influence. And the king doesn't know she's Jewish, but I do, Mordecai said. And I've heard about the decree. Esther doesn't know about the decree yet, but that might just be the hero we need. And so, as we think about Esther, what we realize is Mordecai is going to go to her, he's going to begin to plead with her, but she is not immediately brave. I don't know about you, but I love that, because as we look through these heroes in the Old Testament, before and after they do some great thing, there's usually fear or failure before and or after that event. That feels so human to me. It's like we saw last week, the reality is when it comes to these biblical heroes, they are not fearless, and they are not flawless. They are ordinary people through whom God does extraordinary things. So when Mordecai, knowing that they are in a dark season and all of their family, all of their friends are at danger, they're really at the end of what could be their journey here on earth. They go to the one person they know who has influence, Esther. And I want you to see her less than courageous response to this request look at verse 11 Esther responds and, and, and I feel like she's kind of wobbly voiced in this and she says well all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who would approach the king in the inner court without being summoned the king has but one law this, these would be the consequences that they would be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. Esther looks at Mordecai and says, hey, hey, thanks for asking, but I can't. Look, the people that I'm around tell me all the time that anybody who would go to the king is going to cost them their life if they're not invited, unless the one exception, if he were to extend an invitation, but, but that's rare. You can't ask me to, look, I'm aware of the danger, Mordecai. I, I understand what's going on and what the ramifications of this decree are, but look, I'm lucky to be a queen. I, I read into this story that she still realizes that she was an orphan. She is so fortunate that she, against all odds, is now living in the royal house and that she is the queen. But in her mind, she's still kind of the orphan queen. She has no business going to the king uninvited. She's not qualified to stand up in this massive moment and do what Mordecai is suggesting that she does. And I read into this story. See, the story clearly reveals that Esther has gotten a queen out of an orphan, but I believe her response reveals that she hasn't gotten the orphan out of the queen. And I think that's where a lot of us live, isn't it? Like God did this miraculous thing in our life in salvation, and we're excited about that, but there's still the pull of our past or the shame of our past or the, 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 the repeated behaviors from our past, and those things are hard to break. We recognize that we stand in a royal position, but it doesn't mean that we've been able to break a past behavior. 
And what we're going to see in this story is Mordecai is going to speak into Esther's life. And he's going to see something in Esther that she doesn't see. And I think throughout Scripture and throughout church history, what we see is God alone can change a life for eternity, but He uses relationships to free us from our past behavior and our past thinking. God has a way of using spiritual friendships, and I want to tell you, it's why we're so passionate about groups around here, because it's in small groups where we build these relationships and we can help each other, see in each other what the others don't see, and call out opportunities to be even more for Jesus. I love what Mordecai is about to do. It's in this moment. He's going to look at Esther and say, Esther, I know you see yourself as an orphan queen, but you're the queen. God is giving you a moment and this is going to require you to no longer see yourself as an orphan but a queen appointed by the king of kings and she would have never seen that on her own I believe and I think some of us we need that encouragement too in fact I would ask you who in your life needs to hear what you see in them that they don't. Mordecai is about to speak up and call out Esther to become a hero. And I love this speech. It's one of the all-timers. We pick it up in verse 13. <clears throat> Look what it says. Mordecai begins to speak, and he hears Esther's hesitation because of her fear, so he, Mordecai, sent back this answer to Esther. He says, Esther, do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. Now he's talking very direct. He's talking very, um, uh, very frank with Esther. And what he's essentially saying is your position will not protect you. And you need to know the consequences won't be avoided in your life. And then he goes on to say, beginning of verse 14, For if you remain silent at this time, and here he's about to say, Esther, you're not only not protected, you aren't even that important. Because look what he says as we continue on verse 14. Mordecai says to Esther, these are harsh words. He says, for if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will rise from another place. I don't know about you, but if I'm Esther, I'm thinking, oh, well, good, then I'm off the hook. Perfect. Then I'm going to go back to enjoying the royal palace. I'm going back to the spa. This is wonderful. He says, but what he's doing is he's pointing out something that I often forget. I think we naturally tend to forget. Mordecai is pointing to the providence of God. And he's saying that God will provide someone else if you don't step up. Now you think about in your own life that you are in, in, empowered to raise your children, to be an influence at your job, to influence people in your neighborhood, to share Jesus with people that you know. And if Mordecai were here, he would say, there are consequences if you don't. But if you don't, God will raise somebody else up. And there's part of me that thinks, well then would I be tempted to be passive and not step up if I'm not essential? Yeah, I'm empowered, but I'm not essential. And this is where Mordecai begins to really wrestle in that tension because he says, no, it's better than that. What this means is you can't fail. 
And when you can't fail because of the providence of God, you should then be more bold in your obedience to what God has called you to do. In fact, he goes on as he's pushing the issue here, and he's saying that God's providence doesn't make you passive, it gives you freedom to be bold. In fact, I would flesh that out even more and say, God's providence doesn't give you permission to be passive. It gives you freedom to be boldly obedient. And, and Mordecai is pushing Esther here and saying, look, don't let urgency be your response or your motivation. Instead, God is in charge. You may die, he's about to say, but what if this is why you're here? And because of his providence, you can be bold. And he might just be inviting you to be part of his action plan that will go forward with or without you. Now look how the story continues because it's in the rest of verse 14, which I think is one of the turning point speeches in history. In fact, if you think of great speeches like Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream or Winston Churchill's Our Finest Hour, this is one of those speeches where we really need like James Earl Jones' voice reading it and, and some great background music that's playing that's real dramatic. Like it's one of those speeches. Look at it, verse 14. We'll just read this one verse that's taken out of this great speech. Mordecai looks at her because it's a dark hour and it's fish or cut bait as far as the Jewish people go. And he looks at a, a scared queen who still sees herself as an orphan. And Mordecai, the adopted dad, says, Esther, if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows? but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Esther, this is the moment you have been created for. God played, do you ever wonder how you got from orphan to a queen? It wasn't you. God created the opportunity for you to be in this royal position for such a time as this, for such a need as is around you. Now, I want to just draw a couple of principles out of this because I think this is really important as we think of our own positions of influence. I think the reality is what we see from the story is that your influence is temporary and it is on loan from God. This is exactly when he says that you are in a position of royalty and he says for such a time, it won't be this way forever, as this. It is a temporary gift for you to have this influence. I don't know if you're like me, but sometimes it's easy to think, no, 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 I don't have the position that I have in my office or, or, or in my life because God gave it to me. No, I worked really hard. I got the education. I climbed the corporate ladder. I did all the extra work and put in the extra hours. But we have to remember, we're all smart people. The reality is, had we been born in a nation like Mongolia, we would have been born in a yurt. We would have died in a yurt. We would have been poor our whole life no matter how hard we worked. We are born in a nation with which rewards hard work. So you have that gift, but it wasn't a gift we chose. It was a gift we were given and in this part of our life, we look at every position of influence that we have and recognize it's all from God. And it's on loan and it's temporary. This is a stewardship issue that we have been given with all the influence that we have. But here's the bigger question. God gave you influence, but he gave you influence for the benefit of of others. Haman wanted to use his influence for himself. Everybody will bow when I walk around, right? But all of a sudden, Mordecai is calling Esther to a higher bar of using her influence 
for the benefit of others. And that brings us to what I think is our bottom line here today, and that is this. Your influence is on loan from God for the benefit of others. Every position that you have, every role that you have, it is temporarily given to you from God himself, and it is given to you for the benefit of other people. Now, this is a game changer when we embrace this principle. Because a lot of you are parents, or your uncle and aunt, your sibling, you have a place at work, you have a place in the community, you have a place in organizations that you serve, and in every role, how can you leverage that for the benefit of others? And so many of you are so great at that already, and it's an inspiring story to see. But what's true of an individual is also true of a church. Let's be real. I mean, one of the realities of LifePoint Church is we are building rich. And because we're building rich, we look at that and say, well, God, you've given us these resources. They are on loan from you. How can we use this for the benefit of others? It's one of the reasons, as we think about establishing this second campus, I love what PG has said over and over to me. He says, Mark, I believe in this next season that God is giving us, I thought that was a quote, it's not, it is a quote, but it's not on the screen. Listen to me. God is giving us, PG says, God is giving us an opportunity to maximize our resources to reach more people for Jesus. You see, what's true of individuals is also true of a church. I believe God is inviting us to reach more people for Jesus with the resources that we have. It's one of the reasons we're giving out those t-shirts today is because we realize that people that you know are most likely to say yes to an invitation to church on Easter more than any other time of the year. So we want to give them out a few weeks in advance, hoping you'll wear them, and then you'll also be inviting folks as you wear them. By the way, if you didn't get a t-shirt, right out in the main lobby on your way out, make sure you stop and pick one up today. So at the end of the day, Esther hears this great speech. And I want you to see how she responds with courage. Immediately, in verse 15, we see her respond, and she tells Mordecai, go and gather all the Jews who are in this city of Susa. In other words, she's eventually going to say, we're going to fast, we're going to pray, we're going to get to work, this is a spiritual battle, I realize it's God, I realize he's called me to this, and it's time to act. But she does what that song earlier suggested, we're going to go to battle on our knees. And immediately there is this time of prayer, and there's this time of fasting, and it's a beautiful moment. And you may think, well, did she forget that there's this risk? Because earlier she said that there's a chance that she could die. In fact, it's also Mordecai who said that you could perish, you and your family. Has she forgotten that in her boldness? But not at all. In fact, in verse 16, she goes on to kind of re-reference that. She goes, I will go to the king even though it's against the law. And if I perish, I perish. She's still afraid, I'm sure. But now she has a cause that's greater than her fear, and she's trusting a God who's greater than any earthly authority. And when we get to that place, now we can move forward and see supernatural things happen. And Esther is trusting the providence of God. Summarize the story. The rest of the story just goes like this. Esther ends up inviting both the king. She goes to the king. He raises the golden scepter, so she lives. That's good. And she invites the king and Haman, the villain, to dinner. She does it again the next night. Meanwhile, Haman is off doing this odd thing. He's building an elaborate 75-foot pole on which he plans to have Mordecai, the, his hated nemesis, impaled. 
After the second dinner, Esther approaches the king, and the king says, Esther, what do you want? I'll give you up to half of the kingdom. And she says and reveals that Haman is evil, and he has been plotting to kill Mordecai. And eventually he will find out that she herself is Jewish, and this decree that has been put into place will cost everyone their life. And as with this new knowledge, that it's like the lights finally came on inside the eyes of King Xerxes, and with a major plot twist, King Xerxes orders that Haman be impaled on the very pole that he himself had built. And it's poetic justice. It's a beautiful story, right? And all the people are rescued because one brave woman, Esther, recognized this principle, that your influence is on loan from God for the benefit of others. And Esther said, then I will step forward with boldness and I will be the hero in this moment. And she was, and it's such a great story. Now, I want to I share something that, uh, she doesn't know I'm going to say this, but I'm almost 51 years old, and I have, I'm blessed with, with great parents and siblings. I have two sisters. Um, I have four great kids. <clears throat> and all of them influence me. But without a doubt, the one who influences my life the most is my wife, Ginger. Ginger and I met when... We were barely done being teenagers, right, at the age of 20 and 22 in 1993, and I was in the Air Force having no clue what the future would, would be about, trying to figure that out. Ginger already knew she wanted to be a nurse, and so she began to listen as I wrestled. I wanted to, this is crazy, but it's true, I wanted to either be an attorney or a pastor. And, yeah. So I was a paralegal in the Air Force, and I just thought, man, you know, I, I want to do something, whether it's defend religious liberty or, or go and be a pastor. These were sort of the pathways. And so what I loved about Ginger, though, is that she wrestled with this issue, but she made it very clear that I am 100% with you wherever we go. And what she continued to say, what she said then, she continues to say today, and that is, just tell me when I need to pack. And she helped me wrestle through those issues. And I'll be honest with you, throughout my life, there have been two primary voices, the Holy Spirit and Ginger, not always in that order, but those two voices. But long ago, I gave Ginger permission to tell me the hard things, and she does that with grace. And her wisdom has saved me from a lot of bad impulses and a lot of bad decisions, and it's given me courage to take steps I would have never taken along the way because she consistently sees in me things I can't or don't see in me. So the two great gifts Ginger has given me is one, the safety to be unimpressive, which most of the time I am, and the steadfast, rock-hard belief in me, no matter what. Ginger has been my Mordecai, who said, I see in you, I'm calling you out in this area, and I believe all of us should be a Mordecai for someone. Where we look around in our life and say, who in our life needs to hear what I can see in them that they can't see in them. And I also believe all of us are positioned to be an Esther on behalf of others. And we know that because he's given us positions of influence. And it's our moment to step into that on behalf of others. So I, for one, am grateful for my Mordecai. I'm grateful for the influence of Ginger in my life. And now I just want to ask you a question. In fact, a series of questions as we close. And as you personalize this for you. First of all, what positions of influence do you hold? You hold some 
Have you identified what they are and why that you have them? Secondly, would you just ask yourself, who am I allowing to influence me? And do the wise people in my life know they have permission to tell me the hard things? And then how can you use your temporary position of influence for the benefit of others? And then I might even encourage you to set a reminder on your phone that kind of gives you a prompt each day to ask, okay, today, how can I use this position of influence or the positions of influence for the benefit of others? You see, I believe we become a church full of people who leverage our influence for the benefit of others, that there will be people who drive down this road and they may not be Christians, they may not be involved in church, but they will point at this building and they will say, I may not believe what those people believe, but man, would there be a void if they were no longer here. Because they leverage all of their influence for the benefit of others. Let's be those people. Let's be modern-day Mordecais and modern-day Esthers for the glory of God. Let's pray. God, thank you so much that you remind us that we don't have to be heroic in order to be a hero. We don't have to be um, without fear or without flaws. But you invite us in to, to moments that you place us in. We see the problem, and then we step forward fully trusting you. And God, whatever positions of influence all of us have, God, would you reveal to us how we can use those for the benefit of other people. And God, for those who are in our life who maybe need a word of encouragement so they can begin to see more of who you have created them to be, God, would you help just give us wisdom to speak up and to share in a loving way. God, would you just give us courage and give us compassion for these moments that you have called us to because what we know is you're still here, you're still alive, and you're still powerful, and you are still leading us into the battle. And so with all that, God, we trust you, and we trust you fully. Give us the ability to share Jesus and build believers for the rest of our lives, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I hope today's message was an encouragement to you. And if you'd like a little more information about our church, just visit us on our website at lifepointplano.org.